0: Welcome to The Wrong Kind of Merd. Hello and welcome to The Wrong Kind of Merd podcast. Uh, I'm Keir Hardin.
1: I'm Holly Berrigan.
0: And we are uh, doing this so that we can talk about the issues and talk with people who are important or influential in the world of what gets described as personality disorder. So today we are talking to Norman Lamb. Is he still the Right Honourable
1: Norman Lamb? Mm, I I I don't know. I don't think so. He's definitely still a sir.
0: So we'll be talking to Norman Lamb, who may or may not be honourable. Um, <laughs> and I was really interested in talking to him because, for me, he is the only politician who has ever even uttered the word personality disorder, let alone co-author a paper calling for the term to be abandoned. Um, He campaigns about restrictive practice, which is something we are both very interested in. Um, He's interested in zero suicide. And I just don't know another politician who has waded into the mire that is mental health and... Do you know, Not just gone for things that are good photo ops, he's kind of talked with people and, and represented people that otherwise don't get a look in. Um, oh
1: yeah, I mean, he met, he met with us, Parliament.
0: You say us, that's, that's not me in that us, is it? Oh, it's
1: not, it's not you, no. no.
0: I don't like things that aren't about me. <laughs>
1: <clears throat> bitterly disappointed that you weren't involved.
0: Yeah, so what, what, um, was, your, what was your connection with him?
1: Um, so Tamar Jean set up a meeting, um, with Norman to discuss, um, the way that PPI funding is used in NHS trusts.
0: PPI funding. Uh,
1: public and patient involvement. Um, and how a lot of it is essentially pissed away, um, on absolute bollocks that people aren't really that bothered about. And how it could be much better spent by employing um, people with lived experience um, in a range of different roles, um, and also getting some kind of standardisation around um, how trusts employ LXPs. Um, yeah, so that was interesting. But then he then he retired.
0: So so when you went down to London and swore at Norman Lamb, how how did he react?
1: <laughs> actually, you know what? I think Norman swore first. Well hey. Mm. Like
0: like a sailor.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: Okay. Um so this is the first introduction that we've done um without actually recording it first. So yeah, let's see how that goes. Um if you can like subscribe to the podcast write us a review give us any feedback on social media really interested uh, if you have some suggestions of who we should be talking to we're interested to to hear them but for now meet norman lamb sir norman lamb who may or may sir not norman. be honorable Simon. we'll find out if he's honorable that's a question okay <laughs> norman lamb <laughs> Norman, thank you so much for coming and doing our podcast with us. Um, Great pleasure. And we were thinking about how to introduce you, and we I know the answer that, to anything. Well, we, we <laughs> noticed the Right Honourable Norman Lamb, and we thought, well, does that still apply if you're not in Parliament anymore?
2: It does. I The full title is technically uh, The Right Honourable Sir Norman Lamb, but that is a bit of a mouthful, Sir Norman is fine.
0: Okay, and... <laughs> Is, is there anything that you can do to not be honourable anymore, or is that with you for life? Well, I can try, uh, okay. but,
1: <laughs> but
0: the,
2: the title, once you become a member of the Privy Council, which is what Right Honourable means, um, and I should stress that being a member of the Privy Council is a sort of um, an honorary thing. It doesn't have any substance to it. I don't I don't turn up to meetings at the palace or anything like that, but um, you have it for life once you've been
0: made a member of the Privy Council. Okay. Well, the Right Honourable Sir Norman Lamb, the <laughs> reason that I really wanted to talk to you is um, I, I notice a lot of politicians never say the word personality disorder, and yet you became very involved in a project around personality disorder and co-wrote a paper calling for that term not to be used anymore. Yeah. And I, was, I was really interested into how that came about. What, what drew you into that? So, first of
2: all, I think you're right that the level of understanding in Parliament, I think, is very low. And this is not a gr- group of people uh, for whom there are many out there in the media uh, or a- across the general public who are advocating for them. So it's not, let's put it this way, it doesn't come across as particularly politically sexy mm-hmm. to get involved in it. So um, I think that that's a real problem because it just adds to the sort of sense of neglect that this group of people experience already. Um, <clears throat> so after I had been... Uh, a minister in the coalition, coming out of government in 2015. Sometime after that, and I can't remember exactly when it was, Alex uh, Sturtzaker uh, contacted me to ask whether I would chair a commission looking at the whole issue. Um, And uh, I agreed. And unfortunately, for various reasons, the commission... I, I became the chair and we had some uh, preliminary meetings, but the commission never got off the ground. Uh, and uh, there were various sort of institutional rivalries or problems. Uh, and I didn't begin to understand the, the detail of it, but I just became conscious that it wasn't going to happen. So in place of that, um there was a sort of coalition of the willing developed people who wanted to try and uh, make a difference uh, and who cared a lot about uh, uh, this group of people and how they get treated by the system. And so we started work on a, what we called a consensus statement. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, after a lot of work, uh, something, I think, quite positive came out of it. Um, and that enabled us, once we had the consensus statement agreed and published, we could then uh, seek a meeting with Jeremy Hunt, who was then the Secretary of State for Health, which we did, uh, and to try to get something moving at NHS England. And I think, you know, um, it has triggered some uh, sort of reaction at NHS England, um, And it at least in some ways got the issue onto the agenda. Uh, But, you know, uh, I'm conscious that we haven't really had that much of an impact on the day to day lives and experience of people who are given this diagnosis. Um, And so change reform is still long overdue.
0: And I'm really interested in, of, you said, it's, it's not a sexy topic, but it's one that you chose to go into. Um, and then again, you know, the, the one of the outcomes of the consensus statement was we call for this label to be abandoned. And, yeah, did, did you have much input into that part of what came out of it?
2: Well, uh, through the discussions that I ha- had with... And, and it, I should say that the group of people who came together, first of all, for the uh, proposed commission and then to work on the consensus statement, in, included a lot of people who had been given this diagnosis. So it was very much informed by the experience of people who've uh, had to cope with the system as it is. Um, and uh, And it became very apparent to me quite early on, pretty much immediately, that the label was a real problem. Wow. Uh, I, I'm conscious that there are a whole range of views on this and that some people uh, want to keep that label, uh, but it felt to me like uh, in, there were, within the group I was working with there was a clear consensus that it was problematic Um, that it carried with it an enormous stigma and that really uh, its value, uh, if it ever had any, was now gone and that we needed to have a greater understanding of the life experience of people who end up with that label and to uh, make sure that... We address their needs uh, rather than stigmatize them. I think that's the way I put it. And
0: it's really interesting to kind of hear you like potentially as an outsider coming in and I'm saying, well, what was it that kind of made you hold that opinion? And you're pretty much just saying, well, I listened to people and they yeah. said it was awful. So yeah. I agreed with them. Um, yeah. but it's something that, you know, certainly with the Royal College of Psychiatrists position statement is very label heavy. Um, the new ICD 11 is coming out very much wedded to keeping that diagnosis and It's really interesting to hear somebody can just come along, listen to what people with the label say and kind of just say, yeah, it makes sense that we should get rid of that.
2: Well, I'm acutely aware that so often, you know, when you hear experience of people and you hear about trauma that they have gone through in their lives and that often what we appear to be witnessing is a, in a way, a sort of an understandable response to trauma. Um, and to then call it a disorder is a, is quite um, derogatory, I, I would say. And now set against that, I'm conscious that the system responds to labels. You know, you can never get... Uh, attention given to a group of people who are badly treated by the system if they if they if they're not identified in some way mm-hmm. um so uh, there's got to, i think there's got to be some description of the 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 people that we're dealing with but i absolutely believe we need to move on from uh, that description and you know that view is shared by many people in positions of authority so you know I, I i i think it's something that's important to continue to fight for mm-hmm.
1: so nhs england i think as a response to the consensus statement they um offered trusts pots of money to set up complex need services and i think to encapsulate people typically with a personality disorder diagnosis um, so that's happened um, but what else do you think needs to happen for people with this label?
2: Well, uh, I start from the sort of premise that I think this group of people are the most failed group of people of any, uh, oh. in a way. You know, you think about how, um, I mean, so in, in a discussion I was, took part in last week, Tim Kendall, the National Clinical Director, described how, you know, once people are given that label, it almost acts as a way of excluding people from services. Mm-hmm. Uh, he works with homeless people in Sheffield, um, so you know this is a this is this is sort of punitive almost in, in its uh, impact, um, and and so. They have been neglected uh, by the health and care system. Uh, They have um, had their human rights uh, trampled over. By that I mean that, you know, we know that, and I've, you know, I've heard um, chief executives of mental health trusts describe this to me. I remember one when I was minister talking to me about how people with that di- this diagnosis uh, can get stuck in inpatient care mm-hmm. for long periods of time. Well, you know, this means that we are, in effect, we're locking people up for long periods of time when we know that there is a better way of supporting people. Well, that's a human rights abuse. You can't have the state locking people up when they don't need to be locked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and people become institutionalized, which makes the transition back to a freer life more difficult. Um, so, you know, when I look at parts of the country and, and uh, Alex Sturtsaker took me to a service in Swindon um, where it was called um, Lift Psychology. And this was basically enabling people with this diagnosis, together with others with complex needs, to receive support in the community, in in, in a sort of primary care setting. Um, Often doing group work with people, but, uh, you know, I stress I'm I'm not a clinician, so I have to rely on uh, guidance and advice from others, but uh, what appears to me to be clear is that uh, in those places where there is a a better knowledge and understanding and awareness of um, what uh, of the life experience of people uh, who are given this label and how you can better support them then you are able to massively reduce the number of people who end up in inpatient care Mm -hmm. and who uh, stay too long in inpatient care and that's what we should be Aiming for uh, our focus should be to improve the lives uh, and to give people the chance of a happy life that the rest of us take for granted. Mm. Uh, And rather than going in and out of institutions and too often ending up in the criminal justice system, uh, you know, there are many people in prison, a significant proportion of people in prison either have been or could be given this label mm. um and that's a that's a demonstration of how much the system fails people uh so and and, so and that's what needs to be addressed
0: so me and holly both do a lot of work to try and help people stay out of institutionalized settings um and I'm kind of mindful of, kind of Sir Simon Wesley writing at the beginning of the review of the Mental Health Act saying, we've stopped managing the risks to our patients. we manage the risks to ourselves now. And I think that fear of blame and criticism is something that keeps the people that we work with stuck. hospitals. Yep. You know, I agree. You know, we can't let them out. What if they hurt themselves? What if they kill themselves? What will it look like? What will we be blamed for? And I wonder if you've got any ideas about how how we can get institutions less fearful of blame, or if that is desirable to do it?
2: <laughs> well, there's a horrible risk-averse culture, I think, and, uh, and it doesn't, that doesn't just apply to people given this label. It uh, applies to a whole range of people with complex uh, mental health issues. Just, just look at the use of the Mental Health Act and how it has gone up. Uh, This is the compulsory detention of people um, who haven't committed a crime. You know, it's quite a serious Mm. uh, uh, infringement of people's liberties and their human rights. Uh, I was very struck. I visited uh, Trieste in northern Italy just before northern Italy went into lockdown. It was at the beginning (laughs) of February. And And, and are you you suggested suggesting a link. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone went into lockdown in in Northern Italy, not just those uh, who normally get locked down. But um, what what I was struck by, that uh, Trieste has got a long history going back to the 70s of a much more enlightened approach to mental ill health than most places. Uh, they also have a more enlightened legal framework, without the same powers that we have in this country and so they lock far fewer people up uh, and and the the result of that you discover is that the wheels don't fall off that mm. you don't end up with carnage on the streets and uh, a, 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 and a, and chaos you end up with professionals honing their skills on relationship building on uh, negotiation rather than on the use of compulsion and uh, and I think that we've got a lot to learn from places around the world uh, where a more enlightened approach uh, has demonstrated that that's possible and that, uh, you know, it doesn't end in disaster. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the, the the sort of trend in the last few years of ever increasing use of the Mental Health Act, um, uh, it's not a given. It doesn't have to happen. It can be reversed. Uh, you know, we need reform of the Mental Health Act. And my own view is I would go further than the recommendations in Sir Simon uh, Wesley's um, report, but it's at least a move in the right direction. Mm. And, but, you, but, but we're still waiting for anything to happen. What is it, nearly two years since he published that report. So uh, we need the government to act to create a more enlightened legal framework.
0: And do you have an idea about how some of that fear can be taken away? Because I just think if every inquest I ever read on an inpatient unit, it generally says we didn't watch this person enough and we didn't restrict them enough. And it never says they should never have been in this environment in the first place. I, I wonder how we move away from that mindset of finding somebody to blame it, it's it it's problematic
2: and it's not just the legal framework but it's also you know the um, arrangements we have in place for inspection and regulation of health settings that uh, you know um, organizations fear the CQC will criticize them so uh, and then they get criticized in the media and so forth so uh, the the tendency is for ever greater controls and restrictions. And, you know, I, I remember when I was minister, I visited um, I visited a teenage girl, a 15-year-old, called Fawzia. Uh, her, she's, her family has talked about her situation. It's been in the public domain. Uh, but I visited her in, um, in St Andrews in Northampton. And, you know, the response to what is called challenging behavior, was ever greater restrictions. Mm. uh, Incessant use of uh, restraint, physical force against a 15-year-old, the use of seclusion, putting her basically into a prison cell. I mean, it was deeply shocking to see it. Mm. Um, And yet, you know, I instigated a review of that case. Uh, We got her out of there after a few months. And I went back to visit her two years later. And from the day she was discharged from St Andrews uh, to the day I met her two years later, she hadn't been restrained on a single occasion. Mm. So, so often people behave in the way they do uh, as a response to the alien environment in which they find themselves yeah. um, uh, or the anxiety that they are experiencing because of the conditions that they are Uh, contained within so it's we have to challenge and confront the what I call the containment of people uh, in an uh, unhealthy and uncivilized way Uh, and uh, you know it all happens behind closed doors but it is not acceptable in this day and age that people are treated in this way.
1: Mm. And I think often the other side of that is that people with this diagnosis are often refused admission, but offered nothing in the community that provides that containment. And a result, as a result of that, you know, there have been a high number of suicides because people haven't been kept safe. Well, that and is it...
2: the other side of the coin. You're absolutely right, Holly. And in a way, it goes back to what I said that Tim Kendall had explained about how when someone's given that label they can be excluded from any help. So it's sort of, you, it feels like it's one or the other. They're either completely neglected, in which case sometimes people, and, the, and I. it's very important to stress that this is not intended as a generalisation of people who are given that label, but some people given that label, through anger or frustration, then end up in the criminal justice system. Uh, and so... Uh, you know they they are failed in that way. Uh, so you either end up with total neglect or or an approach which impinges on people's human rights. And yeah. what I'm calling for is uh, a civilized uh, a, approach to care and support in the community, uh, meeting people's needs, meeting people's needs for companionship, for friendship, for mm-hmm. a good life. Um, Giving people the tools to, you know, navigate their way through life, uh, um, rather than the, the sort of you know the polar opposites that we've just been talking about.
0: And then, and this isn't the question that I wanted to ask you, but you've made me ask it now. So if you've described one place where people are restricted, then that restriction goes up. Um, if we're paying two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year plus. For somebody to have that care, which I think you're pretty much saying was making them worse, do you know that's like a million pound a year for four people to get care that's not very helpful. Obviously, if we spent that in the community, you know we could do far more with that money. And if we've got a government that is ostensibly about saving money and being economical, why isn't anybody jumping up and down about us pouring that money away?
2: No, well, I do agree with you, and it's the same argument that applies to people with a learning disability uh, or autism. You'll be aware of the Transforming Care program that uh, I instigated back in 2012, and this was all about getting people out of institutions and into the community. And actually, you know, the state spends a fortune on inappropriate... um, uh, containment of people, wow. whether it's with a learning disability, whether it's people with a severe and enduring mental ill health problem, or people given the label of personality disorder, uh, the cost of neglect or failure is vast. Wow. <clears throat> and if you could spend that money more creatively, you know, so w- back in Trieste in in northern Italy, they they don't they they described how they don't have waiting lists because. If you're not spending a fortune on containment, then you can you you can free up money to spend in a much more creative, optimistic, ambitious way uh, for people, and you know, as I say, give them the chance of a happier, better life.
0: I still don't understand why there's not some chancellor pulling his hair out and thinking we have got to stop ploughing these money into well, private it's institutions
2: it, here. It, <laughs> I'm afraid it's a it's a function of ignorance um, and I don't mean that rudely it's people simply not being aware of the potential to spend money better if you mm. if you could spend you know a couple of hours with the chance of the exchequer actually explaining who this group of people are, how they get treated at the moment, how much it costs the state, and what the alternative could be you'd have a chance of you know, uh, convincing him. Mm-hmm. He's a hes a bright guy, uh, the Chancellor. Well, that's uh, our next
0: guest sorted then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, you know, he has a myriad of other things uh, to deal with. And as I said right at the very start, this particular group of people never get attention within our national parliament um, or uh, within the media. So... People as high up as the Chancellor or the uh, Prime Minister probably know very, very little about this subject.
0: Well, we can try and change that. Um, Absolutely. I've heard you talk about zero suicide, um, which, and, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, but it's the, it's the idea that all suicide is preventable in some way. Um, and I notice myself worrying that if we have a blame culture and people are afraid, then a zero-suicide label can play into that a bit, that people will do everything they can to ostensibly keep people alive, even if that might mean trampling on their human rights a bit. And, yeah, can, can you help me understand if, I, if I've got that right? Yeah.
2: Well, I, you're absolutely right to <clears throat> it, draw attention to what I would describe as the tension here. Um, but I don't think that it needs to be... Uh, 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 problematic Um, so you're right in saying that the objective should be that you know every life is precious and that we should be if we have the if we have evidence about how we um, uh, can reduce the rate at which people take their own lives we should surely be applying that evidence to our practice but the focus of um The Zero Suicide Movement, which comes originally from Detroit in the United States. It was about what you do much, much earlier on. Um, So they they talk about uh, perfect depression care. Um, So the idea is that, you know, at the moment, what happens if you have a chronic physical health condition, for example, and there are psychological consequences to that, and that's a very common uh, feature. Well, you know, what what tends to happen in our country and in many other countries is you get put on a waiting list and you could be sitting on that waiting list for six months, for nine months, um, and you might never get proper support for your psychological needs. What they recognised was that You know, if you've got someone in a diabetes clinic or a heart clinic who's got really significant psychological challenges because of this condition, then make sure they get immediate access to support, um, to to learn the coping mechanisms, uh, to deal with their psychological needs. In other words, holistic care. And if you uh, offer people that immediate support and a, a much more holistic Approach, then you stop the deterioration of health in the first place, and you make it much less likely that someone will reach crisis. And it's it's adopting that sort of approach. I understand the risks that you talk about, and if it was interpreted inappropriately by some people, you could just imagine them, you know, uh, uh, eradicating every possible risk and therefore constraining that individual. Uh, ever more greatly, and that would be an entirely inappropriate response. But I think if one adopts the sort of civilized approach that um, using the evidence of what we know is effective at reducing the risk of a deterioration of health in the first place, then we can save many lives and we can have that as an ambition that can improve the experience
0: of many people. Okay. Does that yeah. make sense? That does make sense. I mean, if, if we had longer, I might kind of talk about, oh, but the, that population in Detroit's very different from Britain and their suicide rate was still higher than ours, even when they were doing the perfect care. But I, I get where you're coming from. But the
2: same principles apply. You know, we, we have a whole load of people here who wait forever for any psychological support, yeah. sitting on waiting lists for long periods of time. Yeah. Tragically, many people take their lives whilst they're waiting. Um, and... So I think, you know, I, I think it, I, my overall response would be to say, be conscious of the risk that you describe. Uh, you know, d- don't allow uh, yourselves to go down the route of, um, of impinging on people's human rights with the ambition of saving lives, but focus on how we prevent deterioration of health in the first place as as a way in which we can genuinely improve lives and make people much less likely
0: to be at risk of taking their own life yeah and i think we we can't force people to live in hell and celebrate Abso- no
2: i accept that yeah. i accept that
0: okay i'm very conscious that you've given us some of your time and and you have pleasure. to go um it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you and yeah
1: thank you so much norman we really appreciate it yeah and just
0: well great great pleasure and i'm
2: very grateful to both of you for focusing on this really important issue and the more we can you know uh, promote awareness and understanding and a more human uh, human and civilized approach uh, mm. the better mm. but we've got a long way to go
0: just very briefly, we asked people on Twitter to suggest any questions and stuff. I saw yeah. that. Yeah, and <laughs> and I think what really came out was just the esteem that you are held in. That yeah. people recognise that nobody else sticks up for this client group, other people who are stuck in treatment units, and you have, and that's appreciated by the world outside and us in particular. So thank you. Well, very
2: much that's today. very kind of you, and It's appreciated. Uh, i I I'm sure I get an awful lot wrong, but I will keep fighting for for justice really. Justice and human rights is what
1: drives me on. Thank you very much. Great pleasure. Good okay. Okay. Oh, so that was nice. Oh, he's so
0: lovely, isn't he? so lovely. We're on a roll of really lovely people. We need to find some fire-spitting, stigma-ridden poster boy. Yeah, give us a
1: I can think of a few.
0: (laughs) (sighs) So it's a shame that that was so brief, because... He's
1: a very important man, Kiri. He's He's
0: got shit to do. Well, Yeah. Other than, than waste his time on the likes of us. Um, I'm not confident in Rishi Sunak coming in anytime soon. <laughs>
1: uh, I can't can't see it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, maybe
0: we'll drop. Maybe
1: up. once COVID's over and he's not having to fudge numbers and yeah, yeah.
0: It makes me wonder about uh, mental health ministers and shadow ministers and whether they might be. Up for a talk? Ooh. Maybe they could be somebody to grab Richie Sunak in a corridor. And give him, give him. I, some
1: don't, facts. I don't, I don't, think we should be encouraging people to accost Richie Sunak. I think, I think we're going to get into trouble if we do that.
0: Okay, All right. We're we're not encouraging the uh, <laughs> putting your hands on any politicians. No, of any discipline. Um, okay so yeah I mean I don't know if we kind of pad this out because this one's finished a bit earlier or um, well
1: should we should we we can
0: we can yes, pad yes. It I mean what what jumps out at you from that few What?
1: um oh so I'm I find the the zero suicide idea quite difficult because when I think of some of the people that I have known, that haven't been in services, haven't really presented in any particular way where people would be worried about them yet have Mm. gone on to kill themselves. I don't know how that would be considered preventable. Mm.
0: I've definitely known of kind of meetings with kind of like town and city planners and thinking of kind of making bridges like yeah that's true um, yeah and like kind of taking that idea of we know some stuff that makes things harder um,
1: mm. yeah. yeah but the the problem is is architects don't want to do it because it ruins their buildings and stuff yeah which i think is fucking ridiculous so there is a particular building in birmingham that was built a few years ago um that has a number of kind of roof terraces, um, which people have used. Mm. Um, And there was a call to make the barriers higher, but they refused to do it because it had ruined the aesthetic of the building. Yeah. What the fuck?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it feels like a callous argument to make that, doesn't it? it?
1: Incredibly, yeah. Yeah,
0: And I don't see why we can't do that more. I don't see why we can't build things into our architecture that that can make suicide more difficult, that can give you that bigger gap between thinking, I'm going to do this and being able to do it. Mm. Um, I do still worry about somebody looking at a spreadsheet and thinking, right, we've had 12 suicides this year, we can't have another one, and just becoming ultra-restrictive. We're not going to let them out of hospital this weekend just in case. We're not going to discharge them off their section just in case. And I think the potential for that to be in the environment is incredibly strong.
1: I mean, you say that, but then people would actually have to get admitted, wouldn't they?
0: Yeah. But then, you know, if they're not in, like sometimes it's a game of like who was the last person to touch them. And if they're not let into services, it's kind of like, well, you know, it's not our fault. Whereas once they're in there, once you're on an inpatient service, you've got to be good enough to be let out, haven't you? And <clears throat> very hard. But that's, that's to the to
1: thing, that. though, isn't it? It's, it's not, it can't be a zero suicide policy if we're not including everyone.
0: Mm.
1: You can't pick and choose the people that you want to keep alive. Which I think is often what happens.
0: Um, that's the thing is its that we, we're pretty good at picking out who's high risk. We're awful at working out who will go on to kill themselves. Um, mm. I know it would be good to get better at that, because if we don't, then we're either kind of waving goodbye to people who might well go off and kill themselves, or we're locking people up who might never do that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and I think you know th- we can talk about this fairly sensibly but the amount of people that I talk to and they're like well they're still having suicidal thoughts so we're not going to discharge them and the amount of people that I've worked with and you've worked with who have suicidal thoughts every day mm. for the past 20 years you know um
1: yeah I mean I frequently have suicidal thoughts it doesn't mean that I'm going to act on them
0: but I think you should be locked up a lot of the time (laughs) (laughs) thanks but you know it it becomes ridiculous doesn't it to kind of think that we're going to lock people up for the thoughts in their head rather than the actions that they take
1: Um, yeah and then that that gets a bit 1984 doesn't it thought crime
2: Mm.
1: you're not allowed to think these things but are they not are they not just a general part of human experience? I don't think I think at some point most people will will consider or feel like they might not want to be around anymore. And we can't lock everyone up that yeah. that says I've I've thought about this. Yeah. Because there'd be there'd be no one left out in the community, would there? <laughs>
0: And I've certainly thought I don't want to be here anymore. That's definitely been part of my experience in life um, and would not have fancied being locked up at the time. But it's only in... Because luckily I've never, you know, been...
1: Mad enough. Well,
0: yeah, and forced to (laughs) accept mental health services against my will. But once that happens, that's when... The thoughts in your heads can become a reason to discharge you. it, it doesn't happen mm. outside of a mental health service you know even if you're looking at um, prosecuting somebody for terrorism you know you can't just go on what they've thought about and mm. talked about with their friends it's got to be the actions that they were at least planning um, but yeah in mental health services, your thoughts will be worthy of, of keeping you inside and
1: I think the real problem is that it's not consistent trust to trust is it hmm. and well, how no, do we no. how do we gain any kind of consistency nationwide I don't think it's possible
0: well trust to trust or ward to ward or team to team
1: well yeah yeah it's
0: a big long it's gap that's clunky me. we'll have to <laughs> Edit that gap out. Some reservations about um, zero suicide. And probably the other thing that jumped out for me is he kind of said, and somebody asked me to come into this task force. And I imagine 99% of people would have gone, no, nah. nah, thanks. <laughs> and, and what was it that kind of got him saying, yeah, all right, then, you know, there's no press opportunities in this and it's not going to make a headline, but but I'll do it. And then even when it stops being a commission and we're just doing it out oh, of the goodness of our hearts, I'll still stick with it. What What was it?
1: I, I think because he's just a thoroughly nice man that <clears throat> wants people to have a decent life and get the treatment that they deserve yeah. and not suffer. And it's a shame that there aren't more politicians like
0: what what else did we do? So why did it? Um, a restrictive practice, um, and I think lots of people wanted us to ask him about his family, but that didn't feel very appropriate. So,
1: no, I <coughs> I found that a bit odd because I don't know. I don't want people asking me about my life. No, you know, even when when it's services and they're asking me loads of questions, and that's supposedly in my best interest. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's often not comfortable, is it? And this I guess this didn't didn't feel right, did it? It's not that not that kind of relationship.
0: Not, we're we're not those kind of interviewers, are we? We're no. We don't that that connection where
1: we no get, we're, you we're, we're not Piers Morgan.
0: No. It was Oprah. Oprah. Oprah gets people crying, doesn't she?
1: Does she? <sighs> like people always seem really happy on Oprah. Like they they relish being with her, I think. Okay.
0: Well, we'll work on that.
1: <laughs> making people cry more. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, if you if you just spoke to people for an hour on your own, I think they would.
0: Most people don't last an hour though, that's the thing.
1: Mm. There is that
0: where is that okay all right well let's wrap that up then um probably should have said this earlier but if people want to like and subscribe write a review give us some feedback either through the website or the facebook page or you'll find both of us on twitter and facebook let us know what you think and take care bye bye